Today is our last week in a series called No Fear November. Uh, I've enjoyed this series, uh, and I hope that it's given you a perspective, hopefully a God-centered perspective on the election, on voting, on kind of everything our country is going through. And I actually didn't see that Facebook post, so I'll have to go home and uh, check it out. Uh, uh, But first, let's uh, draw our hearts to the Lord and, and pray. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word Uh, for you to speak to our hearts. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would take away any fears or anxieties uh, we have approaching uh, November and approaching the election. Lord, we put our absolute faith in you. If you can save us uh, from hell, you can save us from anything. Uh, Renew our hearts, Lord, with this message and open your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I think there's been uh, quite a bit of commentary uh, about not only like agendas and uh, politicians' uh, kind of goals for our country for the next four years, whether it's the president or other elected officials, uh, but there's certainly been a lot of commentary about the individuals themselves. And that kind of brings up this question, how should we... As Christians, so if you're a a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how should we as Christians treat politicians, especially politicians we disagree with? Now there's a 50% chance or whatever percent chance that this election, someone is going to get elected that you disagree with. And so how should you go into the next four years kind of uh, relating to them? talking about them, thinking about them. Uh, In 1997, uh, the author Philip Yancey, so he's this uh, kind of famous author from the 90s. He was famous for having really puffy hair, uh, but he wrote some really powerful books, one about prayer, and he wrote another book about grace, What's So Amazing About Grace?, And in this book, he tells the story of when he wrote an article. So in 1993, he wrote an article entitled, Why Clinton Isn't the Antichrist. Why Clinton Isn't the Antichrist. And apparently this article got published in Christianity Today, and it made its way to President Bill Clinton's desk, and he read it. And so he invited Philip Yancey to come to the White House and be a part of sort of an evangelical, there was this little uh, group of leaders who got to just spend time with Bill Clinton. Now, at this time, if you were here and you remember, uh, President Bill Clinton wasn't very popular among Christians, among evangelicals especially. Uh, In fact, uh, the reason for this is that Uh, his view on abortion, his view on homosexuality. Christians uh, definitely disagreed with him, and so they were kind of at odds. And when uh, Philip Yancey went to this meeting, uh, he said President Bill Clinton uh, said, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist. Uh, You know, he expressed faith in in Christ, and, and he said that he felt like he was a spiritual orphan in D.C., felt lonely. He felt forsaken and alone. He felt this way because his staff, most of those people in the White House, were not Christians. They were secular, and so they didn't believe in Jesus, and so they couldn't support him in his faith. And he was at odds with the rest of the Christian community. They 
were mad at him. They were angry at him. And so he even uh, kind of described the level of hate that he was experiencing. He said at one point in this meeting, I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility, but I was unprepared for the hatred I get from Christians. Why do Christians hate so much? And that's a quote. Why do Christians hate so much? That's really sad. Christians hated him, or at least that's the feeling he was getting. And this described kind of Christianity's relationship with him before the big scandal. Things only got worse. Maybe some of you have heard of the White House effect. It's the, uh, the effect that being in the White House has on the president. Uh, they, 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 they age at twice the normal pace. If you look at a picture before and after serving as the president, they're just absolutely wrecked. And it's because of the level of stress that they're under, but also the level of criticism they receive. And they are alienated. Uh, for being in such a position of power, they don't really have many friends. This election... No matter who gets elected, you're probably going to be disagreeing with someone. And there is a temptation in all of our hearts to get angry, to hate, to pour out kind of our individual wrath on elected officials. Now, we're in the book of Romans today, Romans chapter 13. And the original audience, those, those original people that, that would have read this book for the first time, they lived in Rome, they were Christians, and they had every earthly reason to hate those that were in charge, to hate the government. Now, this letter was wrote, written in A.D. 57, and eight years before this, in 49, an emperor named Claudius what a great name, Claudius. He expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Maybe you think, oh, well, that's not a big deal for the Christians. Well, Christians were considered a sect of the Jewish faith. And so the Christians were cast out of Rome as well. They were expelled. Now, they were able to come back. But this shows kind of the social hardship they were going under. Uh, but if you remember, right, in A.D. 64, so just a few years after this letter is written, uh, Nero, he's, gonna, he's already coming into power right now, but he's going to go bad, and he's going to persecute the Christians just really violently, really bad. It's going to be really awful for those early Christians. And in despite of all of this, Paul has a message for those early believers, those early Christians. He says, let everyone be subject the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. This would have been a powerful message for those early Christians to receive. The book of Romans is a letter about grace. It's about God's grace. And that we don't deserve God's grace and that we can't achieve God's grace. We can't earn God's grace by being a good human being, by doing lots of good works, by doing more good than evil. We can't earn God's pleasure. We can't earn God's kindness no matter how hard we try. The book of Romans is about God's grace and that he forgives us. We ask him, if we just say, God, I, I, I repent of my sins. I invite you. God just forgives us. It, it's called grace. And this means that Christians are to be people of grace that we extend grace that don't 
to, to people that don't deserve it, including our elected officials, <laughs> including politicians. We're not to be people of hate. We're not to be people that get angry every two to four years around November. See, not only does God call us to be people of grace, he has a message for us saying, I put government, I put every government in power. Stop and think about that. Every, every great government, every politician that has ever been in power and every evil government, God has allowed that. God has said this is going to take place. And that leads us to the point from our first verse that I already read, that God gives government its authority. God gives government its authority. Now, when you think of authority, what do you think of? You probably think of power, of privilege, of rights, of strength. These are all things that the original kind of audience would have thought of as well. In our context, maybe you think of your local policeman, your local uh, police department, or your local judge or uh, prosecutor. Or maybe you think of, when you think of authority, you do think of a politician or a military, uh, a branch of the military. Now, some of us have very positive responses to government. We grew up and we felt protected by our leaders, whether it's a, a local or national government. But on the other hand, some of us have very negative responses to the idea of authority. Uh, we didn't feel protected, or we've known people that have been hurt by government. The Bible tells us that God establishes these governments, that he appoints Kind of a fancy word is that he ordains, he, he calls these, uh, these governments, these elected officials into power. Now, that could be discouraging to you. Why would God let that happen? But ultimately, I think it's a comfort because it means that there's nothing that is out of God's control. Even the good kings and the bad kings, he has control over. And we see this in a book called Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel is a man who was taken into captivity by a foreign government. And yet still in that book, we can proclaim that that God is in charge. He sets kings up. He takes them down. See, even if we don't like the government, or maybe you really do and you're excited about this November, either way, we can be confident because we know God is in control. In verse 12 of chapter 13, so Preston did not read it, but it says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And that's a reference to kind of temptation in that verse, but it reminds us that Christ is coming. That Christ will come and deliver us from earthly temptations, earthly trials. The night is almost gone. The day is here. When Christ returns, every government, every politician will be held accountable for how they used their authority. That should give us a great deal of comfort. We don't have to take kind of retribution into our own hands because one day God will make everything right perfectly. Every ruler will have to answer to God. And if we, if we say, you know, the rulers, if they, if they do a good job on earth, they'll be okay, 
between b- before God and his presence, that's actually a lie too because you can have the best ruler. They did the greatest job. They protected their people. But if they don't know Jesus, then it doesn't matter. See, we need to be uh, praying for our elected leaders, praying not only that they will lead with wisdom, with kindness and generosity and uh, mercy, but that they will be uh, led to Christ. So I encourage you as we approach the election, one thing that you can do, take away from this series, is to just spend time praying that whoever God puts in power, that they would come to know Christ as their Lord and their Savior. God gives government its authority, and everyone is subject to this authority. The very first line in chapter 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now, to be subject to something is to be put underneath its control, to submit. Now, we submit to a, a government or uh, perhaps your, your boss. Uh, uh, we submit by obeying, by doing what they call us to do. So should we obey uh, a government that abuses us or, or hurts someone we know, hurts our neighbor? Paul doesn't say, he doesn't dive into, well, you know, if the government is doing evil, what to do then? He doesn't address that in this passage. But if we look at Paul's story, uh, Paul was executed by this same government, by Rome. He was executed by Nero. Later in verse 4, he says that God gives the government a sword. He gives the government the right to bear the sword. Paul was executed with that same sword. So he has some right to say, let everyone be subject. He knew about all the hardships that had happened. When Nero gets into power... And he begins to rule and to put Christians to death. He was an awful guy. I described it a couple weeks ago. He, uh, he, he was such a corrupt official that he burned half of Rome. Okay, so he burned down half of Rome so he could build his palace. And when the local populace came to him and accused him and said, why would you do this? He said, well, the Christians did it. And he began to put the Christians to death, lighting them on fire. He was an evil, bad man. And those Christians that were put to death, they're not known for rising up in rebellion. They're known for dying, <laughs> for being so submissive, they went to their deaths. In fact, they died such bad deaths. That you, can, you can read some of the ancient commentary on kind of like the news that was happening. They died such bad deaths that Rome felt pity for them. And they thought that Nero was unjust. See, they won the people's heart not by rebelling with anger, but by submitting in peace and in faith. What would have given these Christians the courage to submit no matter the state of the government? What would have given Paul the ability to submit as he went to his death? Well, it was probably remembering the founder of Christianity. You know the founder of Christianity? He was executed by a corrupt government. Jesus Christ was put to death on a cross by bad politicians. See, God gives government its authority, and everyone is subject to this authority. God himself has subjected himself to uh, a government in a local time and period. But why ultimately 
does God give government its authority? What's the, what's the purpose? What's the ideal thing that is supposed to happen? Well, government is supposed to give us its protection. Government gives us its protection. Verses 2 through 5. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. God gives government its right to protect you and me, to to punish those that rise up in rebellion, but ultimately to bring hope, to bring uh, a safeguard. This summer, Monica and I were visiting my brother, Nathaniel. Uh, He has a wife and three kids, uh, and all of his kids are ages four and below. And a couple months earlier, uh, he had had some of his family over to his house, so his sister-in-law, and they have a little boy as well. And at the time, in this apartment, so they were in an apartment, he lived on a ridge. So it's in Colorado, it's kind of in a canyon. He lived up on this dusty ridge, and there's lots of rocks, uh, kind of dead-looking bushes, and you could look down the side of the ridge, and there was a winding stream below. And one day, there was a a family gathering, and he heard his sister-in-law scream. She was sitting outside with the kids. She heard her, uh, he heard her scream. And instantly, he knew what was happening. He ran outside. He grabbed a shovel. He took that shovel, and he struck the head off a rattlesnake that was lying just three feet uh, from his daughter, from my niece. He killed that snake. The locals in that area, they call the, the mountain my brother lived on, the, the hill, Rattlesnake Mountain. <laughs> They no longer live on that hill. (laughs) One of my brother's God-given roles is to protect his daughter. That's his responsibility, his right. (laughs) In this case, he literally protected his daughter with an act of violence, slaying a rattlesnake. God gives a similar aspect of authority to the governments around the world, including the United States government. Verse 2 tells us that when we rebel against God-given authority, it's as bad as rebelling against God. God sets this entity up, says we're called to obey it. That's not an easy teaching. Who, Who wants to submit to anyone, especially if you disagree with them? None of us do. But this is what the scriptures call us to do. The government, it's supposed to bring judgment, verse 2. It's supposed supposed to bring terror, and it's supposed to bring uh, the sword on wrongdoers. That's its right. Paul says, they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It's the government's job to punish uh, kind of uncommon evil for the common good. This is its role. And that's kind of a scary thing to realize that 
there is an institution that has that right. And when they, when they use that right, they're not wrong before God. They're doing what God has called them to do. Now, sometimes they do have to use violence, but other times they just set up laws. They set up ordinances, and they call us to obey those laws and those ordinances. We are to respect these laws. We're supposed to respect the laws and the lawmakers. We're supposed to humble ourselves. We're, we're not to lash out at them. Why? Because we want to obey God ultimately. It's a matter of conscience, verse 5. We can trust God even when we don't trust our elected officials. God gives government its authority to protect us. And one of the ways the government protects us is by setting up boundaries. Now, to protect his children, my brother set up boundaries. He made new rules. He said, well, you can no longer play in the yard. You have to play on the deck. Now, the deck's pretty big, but it's raised up a little bit above the ground, and it has a mesh fence around it. That's a good thing. That's a boundary that my brother is setting up to protect his children. Now, my nieces and my, my niece and my nephew, they didn't like this rule. And so they would take their toys and they would throw them over the fence into the yard. So the, the yard was littered with neon frisbees, orange basketballs, glow-in-the-dark soccer balls because the kids didn't understand the rule. They didn't respect the rules. They didn't, they didn't want to obey the rules. These were signs of their rebellion. Sometimes the government sets up rules that we don't fully understand or we don't really like. And we want to disobey as well. One of those rules is a pretty simple one that maybe half of us or a quarter of us, maybe none of you since you're all Christians, have ever disobeyed texting while driving, right? Every time someone texts me while I'm driving, I remember that the government wants to protect me by saying no, even though I don't want the government's input on my texting habits, how about airport security? We don't like it. But what would happen if it was gone, if it was taken away? What about the water ban this summer? Maybe some of you were in a community that had a water ban. In Chelmsford, we had one, a level three. In other words, no outside watering. Now, maybe we didn't always obey that. Maybe we didn't always abide by that rule, but ultimately it's set up to protect us, to make sure there is a plentiful water for what really matters, not our yards, but our drinking and utilities for not just you, but also for your neighbor. And we disobey, we rebel, and there are signs of our rebellion all over the place, aren't there? There's a lush, green, uh, grassy lawn right next to a dead, parched lawn. <laughs> You know if they obeyed the law, don't you? How about angry passengers on flights or passengers missing their flights? Fatal car crashes due to texting while driving. These are signs of our disobedience against a government that seeks to protect us and has that God-given right. The government has the right to set up boundaries, big ones, small ones, to institute consequences. Ultimately, we pray that are for our good. God gives government its authority. Government gives us its protection. And so what are we called to do as believers? Well, I've been hinting as it, uh, at it as we go through this passage. We are called to give government our submission. We're called to obey 
to respect, to honor. Now, uh, submit, we're called to submit in really two ways in verses 6 through 7. We're called to submit with our money and with our attitudes. Uh, Verse 6 says, This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then pay revenue. Uh, If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So first, we are to submit to government with our money. Now, I love that Paul just makes this incredibly practical. He's kind of talking in this almost abstract way. You need to uh, submit to the authorities. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, he says, you need to pay your taxes. See, Paul knows how to get at the heart of an issue, you know, get, get at our hearts, because there's nothing that we hold dearer in this life, I bet, than sometimes money, than our finances, than how we use them. Paul says, you know, you're to submit to the government by paying your taxes. This is how we show our respect, our our submission. This is very similar to why we give our tithes and offerings. So each week we collect tithes here at Cornerstone. We collect what you're willing to give, your offering. And one of the reasons we're called to give our tithes and offerings is an act of submission to Jesus Christ, to say, Jesus, you're more important than me. You've called me to give of my finances. I'm going to submit to you in this way. And this applies kind of to the public sphere as well. We're called to give government our money as it calls us to do so. This doesn't mean it's always easy. When I was in seminary, so I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary up in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Uh, A seminary is a place where you train to become a pastor, where you train to lead other people kind of in worship of of God. When I was going to seminary, I cheated on my taxes because that's a good thing you want to do, right, when you're training to become a pastor, See, I didn't do it in a big way, but when I was at the like, local tax filing place, I told the lady whatever she needed to hear to get me the biggest refund I could possibly get. I was a poor seminary student, and I wanted my money back. And as soon as I walked out the door, we finished filing my taxes, I knew that I had disobeyed God that I had cheated, that I had done something wrong. I just kind of pushed it out of my mind, and I I fought it back. But then a couple months later, the Lord just got to my heart, and I went back, and you can file an amendment. And so I filed an amendment, and I had to pay about 300 bucks. And that's a lot of money when you're in school. But God was honored in that decision. And you can do that, too, if you've done something similar. You can come and talk to me if you want, um, because I've been there. It's no fun. We're called to pay our taxes, Uh, this year, next year, for the next four years. If a politician gets elected that you don't like, you're still called to pay your taxes. If laws get put in place, that bills get passed, that you know are not good for your finances, that are, are what you would consider a waste of taxpayer dollars, we're still called to pay our taxes. Paul calls his audience, he's, pay your taxes. I love the passage we, we read, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, this doesn't mean there aren't appropriate times for protest, but we're always to obey God and to do it, uh, to, to obey the government in ways that honor God. If the government ever says, you know, do this thing that is disobe- disobedient to God, 
and don't do that. But ultimately, in most circumstances, we're called to obey, and if we do disobey, we do so respectfully. We submit to the government with our money, first way. Second way, we submit to the government with our attitude. Paul links, in verse 7, he links uh, money to our hearts. Notice how many times he says to pay money. He says, uh, pay taxes, If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. He says money four times there. If you you owe them respect, give them respect. If you owe them honor, give them honor. He's talking about the heart attitude. He's linking money with heart. See, God doesn't want just an act of submission from us. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions and say, okay, I've done all the, the right steps. I outwardly, outwardly, I look fine. I've, I've, I've respected the government, but on the inside, you're raging against them. You're angry. Now, he wants a heart attitude that's genuine, genuinely submissive. So how do we show we're genuinely submitting from the heart? That's a hard thing to do, especially if we disagree with those that get elected. Well, Matthew has a verse that reminds us what to do. Matthew 15, 18 says, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these are what defile them. We want to use our words wisely these next four years. We want to choose what we say carefully. Now, one of the ways that we submit to those that we love and care about, whether it's a a spouse or uh, maybe a leader in the church, is we try not to talk trash about them, right, behind their backs. You can't say, oh, I love my spouse, they're the best, and then the next day be talking to your friends saying, oh, they're they're terrible. Here are the things that I can't stand about them. And this is a way that we're also called to honor and respect the government, even the worst elected officials. No no matter how badly I want to say, oh, they're evil, they're dumb, (laughs) to call them stupid, is that truly respectful? Is that truly God-honoring? Now, I have not obeyed this. I was really just learning this passage uh, as I was studying it this week. I was realizing I have not honored politicians with my words. And so this should be an encouragement that we can all start anew this November as the next politician comes into office. Let's try to honor them with what comes out of our mouths. This is countercultural. You're going to see in the news, you're going to see political pundits, you're going to see late night talk show hosts. They are going to make fun of politicians for the next four years. But Christians are called to be countercultural, aren't we? We're called to give respect and to give honor, even if we disagree. And we can disagree. That's fine. Do that politely. But do it in a way that honors God. We submit to government with our money and with our attitude. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. We learned about that through this series, that we want to be present even in the midst of politics so that we can love our neighbor. We're called to love our neighbor, even the one that lives in the White House. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm not always going to submit to the government perfectly, am I? I'm not going to want to submit from my heart. I'm not going to to use my words wisely. I've already blown it with uh, submitting financially, So we can't do this. We're fallen. We're broken. We're sinful people. And this is why we need Jesus Christ. 
See, we can't submit to the government, but Jesus did so perfectly. Think about Christ for a moment. Through his earthly life, he submitted to Caesar. (laughs) He paid taxes. There was even a miracle where he found the tax payment in a fish so that he could give it. See, Jesus submitted even to the point of death. He went before Pilate. He went before Herod. He was condemned to death. And did you hear verbal kind of words coming out of Jesus' mouth saying how bad Pilate was or how evil Herod was? No. 1 Peter 2, 23 says this, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, by not fighting back against the earthly authorities, by submitting to the earthly authorities, Jesus was ultimately submitting perfectly to the will of his Father, to the will of God in heaven. It's much more scary to be put into the hands of God than it is any government authority. See, Jesus placed himself in his Father's hands, and what happened? (laughs) He was executed. He died. It was his Father's will. But Jesus was showing true submission. And, And God honored Christ for that. Jesus, three days later, he rose again from the grave in victory over sin, over death. And then he ascended. Ascended's a fancy word for saying he rose. He rose up into heaven, and he is now seated next to God. That's where Jesus is. He is seated next to the Father. He's ruling. He's reigning. Wow. Look what Christ did. He submitted himself to ugly earthly authorities. And look what Christ has come to now. Look what God has done for him. He humbled himself, and then the Father exalted him. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, if, if you've repented of your sins and said, Jesus, I need you to come and forgive me for all the ways that I disobey you, that all the ways I disobey the Father, all the ways I disrespect and dishonor uh, the authorities in this lifetime, suddenly you're also seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And that means that you're, you're perfect in Jesus Christ. You've always submitted perfectly. You've always showed perfect honor and respect to God. That should be incredibly encouraging because that means God judges you not on your record, but on the record of his son, Jesus Christ. Praise God that in Jesus I have perfect submission. Praise God that in Jesus I am forgiven. And see, now I can trust the government. I can place my hands in a government that, that, that I might not be too thrilled with because I know ultimately I am in whose hands? I'm in God's hands. I'm placing myself in the king of kings' hands, in Jesus' own hands, and they're the safest hands. There are a lot of issues at stake this November. I don't want to go through and name them all, but I know many of you care passionately about uh, decisions that will be made, the ballot issues, politicians who will come into power, and the things that they will decide. And if you watch television or you go through social media all day, or even, you know, I received this this week, the Massachusetts Information for Voters Guide, this red booklet. Even if you look at this, and this is all you have going into this November, you're going to get discouraged You're going to get frustrated. You might even become afraid. But my friends, that's why we have this. (laughs) That's why we have the Bible. 
This is God's word, and it reminds us that we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to doubt. The king is on high. We can all trust him. He's a good king. He's a just king. He's a merciful king. He died for us. I don't know of any politician that's willing to die for his people, but Christ did that. The first week of this series, No Fear November, we went through Philippians, and we learned that with Jesus, we're safe. We're free. We're fearless. No one can take us out of his hands. Last week, I taught us about how we should approach the election, not aligning ourselves with any one power before we align ourselves with God. We don't want to trust any worldly institution before we put our faith ultimately in Jesus Christ. Align yourself with Christ, the cornerstone. And this week is a simple reminder, but a reminder that we all need to hear that God is in control This election does not surprise him. And whoever is elected, whether it's local government, local politicians, or our president, we're called to submit to them. We're called to obey them, whether we like them or not. God gives government its authority. Government gives us its protection, and we give government our submission. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, that you are in control, that you're in charge. Lord, sometimes we're called to do things we don't like. One of those things is submission, (laughs) to obey you. Sometimes that involves obeying earthly authorities, earthly powers. Lord, would we do that in a way that honors you for the next two years, the next four years? Whoever gets put in charge, would we honor and respect them? Would we pay our taxes? (laughs) Would we obey you? God, I pray for this election. Would whoever you want to be put in charge be elected? Would those ballot issues that you want to pass, pass? Ultimately, we know, God, that you're using everything for your glory, that this is all part of your plan, and that gives us a great deal of hope. Father God, I I pray for the offering now as we bring our finances before you today. Would you bless the offering? Uh, Would you use it to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Not the kingdom of this world, Father, but the kingdom of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.